Hey guys, welcome to the JRM Cine Podcast. This month, we will be discussing the new series called I Am, where we talk about the attributes of God. We pray as you listen to this message, you will be blessed, empowered, and drawn closer to God. I hope you enjoy this message, and God bless! There's something about a name. A name is given, but often it signifies something deep about the person. Like God changed a lot of people's names in the Bible to show change in that person. God himself is the only being to name themselves from square one. And we get that name of God right at the very beginning of the Bible. The Bible begins in the beginning, God. But there are lots of names of God in scripture. Which one did the Holy Spirit inspire Moses to write to start out the greatest story of the universe? Who is the main character in the history of existence? God. And here his name is Elohim. It's a word that's always plural, signifying the unfolding mystery of the Trinity right from the first verse of the Bible. El is one form of the name, which is singular. It's used often, Genesis 7, Numbers 23, Ezekiel 10. Elah is plural. That's used in Jeremiah 10, but here we get Elohim. That's the name we're looking at, and it is also plural, but it implies three or more. Elohim was also used of pagan gods in the ancient cultures, making it like the word God in English, which can be used to describe the God of the Bible as well as other gods. It's a spiritual name uh, for something non-physical and supreme. Elohim is used 32 times in Genesis 1 and 2,500 times in the Old Testament. It's the original name for God in the Bible. And just like our English word God, it's the most basic and common name for God. It also has the implication of a ruler or a magistrate over the world. It's the name that Abraham used when he said that Elohim would provide a lamb for the sacrifice. It's the name that Jacob said to Joseph on his deathbed, Elohim will be with you. When Moses came to Mount Horeb, it was called the mountain of Elohim. Joshua said to Achan, give Elohim praise. Malachi said, will man rob Elohim? Jesus Christ, with his clothes stripped and his arms forced to hold up his body by the weight of itself and the pain of two nails in his hands and one in his feet, said, Eloi, Eloi, which is the Aramaic form of Elohim. It's the key original and wonderful name of the one that brought the universe into existence. Even if you only speak English, you can pray to God using his original Hebrew name. You can say Elohim as you pray. Through God's names, we learn more about God. My hope, though, is that it won't stop there, that you wouldn't just know more about God, but that you would truly know God. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Hallelujah. Oh, what a wonderful day to celebrate the goodness of the Lord. And uh, this place, this room, our house, this church, uh, seems a little bit colder without you in it, but um, uh, how we miss each other and how I miss your smiles, your, the sound of your laughters, but I know that even in your living room, in your ha- homes, in your rooms right now, wherever you are, or maybe uh, in your kitchen, uh, you are, I, 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 I believe and I declare in faith and I just know that God is uh, moving and touching your hearts encouraging you. If your hearts are open to the Lord and you are seeking Him, you know what? The Bible declares that if we seek the Lord with all of our hearts, we will find Him if we seek Him with all of our hearts. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you very much, Manalang family, for hosting us today. Thank you, Great Jerry, for that brilliant 
uh, giving exhortation and Alisa, our wonderful Alisa, for uh, being our SR today. And as we continue with our third Sunday of the month, our third part of the series we call I Am the attributes of God. I do believe that God has uh, so much things in store for us to receive that we will uh, that will give us, you know, inner strength and once again fix our eyes to have a better perspective. Or uh, I, I correct myself, you know, a right perspective rather of who God is. And a lot of times people say, "Oh, why are you preaching this? And why are you preaching that? Why are we not talking about COVID?" Uh, we should be talking about COVID because that's the season where we are. But I, I beg to disagree to that because in a season where we are right now, similar to this, the most important thing to talk about is God, who He is, and uh, you know, us encouraging one another towards you know a right and fruitful knowledge, understanding, and experience of God. Amen. So I am very, very excited to share to you today's message. You've just watched that um, preliminary video. And the name of God that we are getting to know today uh, related to His attributes is the name Elohim. And this is the first and the most frequently used name of God, especially in the Old Testament, more than 2,500 times. Elohim is uh, generally the word God, as we speak it in our English vernacular. And uh, it just literally means uh, supreme God. It's a superlative once again, just like Adonai. Last week, we talked about Adon being the singular form, and Adonai is like a plural, majestic form. Uh, it, this this uh, name, Elohim, is also a plural, majestic form. But specifically, what's interesting about this name, Elohim, is that it actually points to the reality of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, let's read some passages, and I'd like to remind us of Psalm 91 in particular. Psalm 91 is one of our favorite psalms. Last year, I preached a message uh, entitled, Under His Wings, and I encourage you to revisit that sometime this week if you have the capacity. But we are looking at that uh, psalm last year, as I remember, and in that psalm alone, uh, it's used the names of God. So let me read from Psalm 91, verses 1 to 2. It says here, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High, that's El Elyon, will rest in the shadow of the Almighty, where we get the name El Shaddai. And then I will say to the Lord, this is what we've learned last week, Adonai, I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, Elohim, in whom I trust. So if you look at that, already four names of God has been mentioned or revealed in there. And all these names kind of talks about the security, the refuge, uh, the safety that we have in finding our, you know, our fortress in the Lord alone. So church, with your comments at the moment, would you say with me and also speak it out loud? I mean, uh, in your homes together uh, as a family. Can you repeat these words after me? The first one is, I live under the protection of the Most High God. Come on, say it. I live under the protection of the Most High God. Amen. Declare it. Ne next one is, I dwell in the shadow of the Almighty God. Say it. Amen. 
I dwell in the shadow of the Almighty God. And then last but not the least, the Lord is my refuge and my fortress. I trust Him. The Lord is my refuge and my fortress, and I trust Him. My friends, I hope that the Psalm 91 is not just a beautiful poem or a beautiful prayer or a beautiful declaration, but it will become your very own conviction and statement of belief that every single day, no matter what we face, this is a reality because our God uh, promises that to us. Amen? Okay, so that last name there was Elohim. And there are multiple other verses, but one, uh, what I'd like to point out is the first ever, the first verse in the Bible, which is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And Elohim was used as the first name of God in the whole of the Bible. It says in Genesis 1 1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And if you are going to read through the entire Genesis chapter 1, we will find the story of God's creation of everything that exists. And every time God creates something, the comment or or basically the uh, response that he has in observing his creation is that it is good. Amen? So when he created the sun, moon, and stars... And then he said, it is good. When he created the animals, the ocean, the sky, you know, the plants, every living things, he said, it is good. And that is a, an important thing to note because it's important to understand that God creates good. Amen? Because of his goodness. Because of his goodness. And that's one of the three attributes we're going to talk about today, the, three, the, the moral attributes of God, church. But before you proceed, can I ask everyone to bow down their heads, close their eyes, and just commit this time unto the Lord as we pray. Father, we thank you once again for the awesome, awesome, awesome privilege to hear your word, to receive your word. Thank you for technology, Lord. Thank you, Lord God, that we can, Lord God, use, Lord God, this media platform so that we can, Lord God, have an encounter with your truth. And Lord God, thank you, Lord God, for many of our brothers and sisters that are uh, maybe uh, separated by uh, physical distance, but Lord God, together with one heart, Lord God, with one mind, Lord God, longing to draw closer to you and to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, today, speak to us. Reveal to us your word. Reveal to us your truth. Your truth is life, and it is health to our body. Thank you so much, O God, that you are here. You are so near. You are moving, Lord God, and I welcome you to continue to work within me and my family. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. So as I was saying, you know, God, because of His very nature, good, God's goodness, He creates, or what He gives is always good. From who He is flows what He does or what He creates. So everything He creates is good. So James 1.17 says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, 
who does not change like shifting shadows. So every good and perfect gift is from above. Everything that you have that is good, every blessing that He pours out upon our lives, each day that He gives us, they are good and they are from above because God is good. Now, I'll introduce you with this um, concept of the moral attributes of God. But first, let me just remind you of these two fellows that I introduced to you two Sundays ago. The two kinds of, uh, the two categories of attributes of God. The incommunicable attributes and the communicable attributes. Now, we're about done with the incommunicable attributes the past two Sundays. Incommunicable attributes just means that uh, these are character traits and nature of God that only Him possesses. He doesn't share this with creation. He doesn't, uh, no one else in all of existence has this. And the ones that we've talked about is God's eternality. He's the only one that doesn't have a beginning. He is infinite, you know, and God is immutable. You know, He doesn't change. He's the only one that can never, ever change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then the the, the third one is God's aseity, or what we say is self-sufficient, or independence. No, God is the only one, it's the only being that doesn't need anyone or anything. All of us need something, but only God is self-existent and self-sufficient. And then last week we talked about the three omnis, which has the three omnis, which is uh, omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. Only God has those power. Those alone makes God God, makes him Adonai. Now, those are incommunicable attributes. And today, we mark uh, a beginning of a, uh, a part wherein we're talking about the communicable attributes of God. Now, the communicable attributes of God are the, the nature of God, the character of God that He shares with His creation. So, He imparts this as a mark to His creation. So when we say all the time that we were created in the image of God, that we were created in the likeness of His character, this is what we mean, the communicable attributes. And some of those attributes that we're going to talk about is that God's goodness, God's uh, love, mercy, His grace, you know, all these things we also possess to some degree. Uh, We have a tendency, a natural tendency to somehow uh, long for that character because we are designed by God according to that nature. Are you following me? Amen? Are you with me? (laughs) All right, all right. Galaw, galaw. Baka ma-stroke. Paki... uh, Sundut ng iyong katabi, poke the person next to you, and see if they're still following. Now, this part, I call it the, the moral attributes of God because it talks about God's morality. So, uh, type in your comments for a moment. Uh, we always hear that word, moral. What do you think is the meaning of that word? Amen. Sige po, I can see your comments right beside me. What do you think is the meaning of the word moral? We have um, a subject in school before, GMRC, Good Moral and Right Conduct. <laughs> so, moral, what does it mean? When we watch a movie, when we watch a, a show or something, we ask our children, oh, what's the moral of the story, right? So, what does it mean? All right, here we go. 
moral of the story. Moral just means uh, it's uh, concerned with the principles of right and wrong behavior. Amen? So it talks about what is good and what is evil. So the moral attributes of God points us to rightness and goodness. And some of the things that we've listed here are goodness, God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's love. Some of us are uncomfortable that God is jealous, but I'll explain that in the next coming weeks. God is just. It means God wants justice. He is merciful. God is a God of wrath. It's part of His moral attributes, and some of us might be uncomfortable with that idea, but I'll also explain that in the coming weeks. Um, It's important to understand grace if we are going to understand if we are going to understand grace we must understand the wrath of God as well so and then last but not, not the, the least is the grace of God but t- today we're just going to talk about this top 3 uh, basically overarching and influencing all the other attributes of God which is God's goodness God's holiness and God's righteousness amen are you ready are you ready? So I need you to put your thinking caps on, hearts open, and pens and paper ready. Because uh, this is something that you have to know and understand. And it's very crucial because right believing, again, leads to right living. As we know God properly, we can relate with God properly as well. Amen? So, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. That is a very uh, familiar, and uh, it's a very familiar mantra or, or chant that we do in churches all the time. But what does it mean that God is good? What is God's goodness? Now, this is the most common and the most um, celebrated attribute of God. In fact, many of the Psalms, many of the Psalms are filled with the description of God's goodness, the mention of God's goodness. And also, a lot of the songs we sing in church right now, right? Our favorite is the goodness of God. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. Oh, you are good, good. Oh, are we sing. Uh, you are good, you are good, you are good. We have all these wonderful songs, and though they are beautiful, sometimes we can really limit what the goodness of God means, and we can just really think about it as just limited to a blessing that we've received yesterday, or a brand new car, or maybe, uh, you know, you... You had a new job. And that's all part of God's goodness, but that's not all of God's goodness. So this is exciting. Mark chapter 10, verse 18, it says, No one is good but one, and that is God. No one is good but one, and that is God. And Jesus himself is saying this uh, in, the, in the scriptures. The, God's goodness means this, that he is infinitely unchangingly kind and full of good will. Now, that can still be vague and narrow. Let's have a look at uh, A.W. Tozer's description of God's goodness. He says here, The goodness of God is that which disposes Him to be kind, 
cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude towards all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, look at this, by the nature of God, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in blessing his people. Amen? That is such a wonderful news for us, that God is good. God is not good just for Him to look good or to feel good. Goodness is God Himself. He will never cease to be good. And what's important about this as well is He's not trying to reach a standard of goodness. There is no law or, or standard of goodness that is outside of Himself. He is the definition of good. You know, he's not trying to, like us human beings, right? We have a standard of goodness, you know, good, better, best, yeah? So, and then we try to comply or to meet the standard of goodness outside of ourselves. God is not like that. The goodness of God, God defines good. God defines good. Uh, hallelujah. Are you learning something from this? Amen? Amen. Another thing that we have to note, I'll just read some of the verses here. Look, um, some of the examples that we see in the scriptures. In Psalm 145, verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Psalm 145, verse 9, in, in uh, doctrinal language, we call this common grace. It means that God is actually good to all, both the wicked and the good, the sun shines on both the bad and the good. You see, oxygen is free for everyone, no matter how bad you are. And that is God's goodness. You know, every morning you wake up, the sun shines on you, even though you're not deserving of it. That is God's goodness. Even though some parts of the world are literally evil and wicked, God still sustains it. There's no uh, 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 genocide that's happening to a, a tribe or a nation that is purely evil. God is good. You know, the mercy of God is overflowing. And the picture of that, for example, is Jonah when he was commanded to go to Nineveh, a wicked nation. God was still good to see that nation turn back to him. Well, Psalm 119 verse 68, it says also, you are good and you do good, of course, because he is good. And then, uh, the prayer of the psalmist says, teach me your statutes. Statutes just basically means your laws. And then in Nahum 1.7, I love this. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Oh, that's Psalm 107 verse 1, I mean. And then the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. The Lord is good. Amen. Can you shout out in your uh, chat section, God is good all the time. Amen. And that is already a truth in itself. When we're declaring that God is good all the time, it means that He will never cease to be good. He will never stop to be good. He will never change in His goodness. Now, that's important to note because 
One of the other attributes of God is what we call unity or God's divine simplicity. And that just means that God, all of the attributes of God is not independent from each other. It's not that God is 10% good, 5% merciful, 50% gracious, uh, 10% omnipresent, 50% something like that. God is not, uh, God is not composed of the attributes. The whole of the attributes are perfectly working together and is God Himself. The definition of God is His attribute. So, He's 100% good. He's not 99.5% good. <laughs> He's not like that. He is 100% good. And because, you know, when you talk about unity, it means that all the other attributes are reinforcing all the other attributes. So say, for example, we talked about immutability, that God is unchanging. It means that God's goodness will never change. God's unchanging character, we can be sure, and it's a blanket of security that God's goodness will never change. And all the other attributes, you know, God's om imagine this. If God is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, just like what we learned last week, and then He is not good, will you trust Him? Will you trust Him? Obviously not, right? But that's the wonderful news. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and yet He is good. Isn't that amazing, church? Amen. Uh, another thing about God's goodness is this, that it means that the Lord is not and will never be evil, that He does not love sin nor tolerates it, and He can never be tempted by evil. This is very, very important. For God to be good, it means that completely He abhors evil. His wrath is against wickedness. Amen? So everything He does and He gives flows from His goodness, and His goodness always overcomes wickedness or sin. Amen. God's grace covers a multitude of sins. Now, look at this passage in Matthew 7, 11. It says there, if you then, now God's talking to us, if you then being evil, wow, if Jesus is going to talk to you that way, Hey, Bino, if you, being evil, imagine my own. If God talks to you like that, well, perhaps some of you will be offended, right? But He has the right to do so because we do not have 100% goodness like God. <laughs> a person can be, you know, people will generally say, oh, that person is a good person. Oh, that person is a good person. But that person or any person whatsoever in the world does not have 100% goodness. Amen? Not like God. Because, uh, you know, uh, we still have areas and, and the, the sin that has distorted and damaged and destroyed the goodness, the pure goodness of God in us is still being restored by the Lord. Amen? So look at this. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Amen? God gives good things. If you're God's children, that's what you will experience. Uh, last part in this goodness uh, uh, attribute of God, I love this passage in Psalm chapter 34, verse 8. 
And it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God wants us to experience His goodness. It says, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Now, at a point to note, uh, in this passage in Psalm 34, it's actually quite easy for us to celebrate or declare the goodness of God. Say, for example, you had a promotion at work, and then you will say, Oh, God is so good. God is so good. I had a promotion from work. Or maybe you have uh, purchased a new business franchise, and the door opened, and you will say, Oh, hallelujah. God is so good. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? And we can celebrate the goodness of God. But can you say the same thing when a trial comes? Can you say the same thing when someone is sick in the family? Can you say the same thing when situations kind of become uncomfortable and inconvenient or you don't like it? Can you still say, oh, hallelujah, God is so good? Uh, to be honest, we won't. It, it's a human response, isn't it? Doubts begin to rise, fear begin to engulf us. But in this passage in Psalm 34, it's quite interesting because we always hail verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. But you know what? If you read the whole of Psalm 34, the author is actually writing this from a position of suffering. He just continues to encourage the listeners of this that even in the midst of pain and suffering, God remains good. I don't understand it, but I do believe that God is still good. How do we know that? In verse 19 of that passage, the author says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. When bad things happen to good people, we begin to question, Is God really good? We begin to doubt. But this is the scenario where the author of Psalm 34 comes in. He comes in from a position of understanding that in this world, we will experience pain and suffering. We are not exempted. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the kicking point, continuing in the reading of that verse in verse 19, he says, Yes, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. That God will always be faithful and he will always turn things around. If we can remember the best example of a person who has a great conviction of God's goodness in the Bible is two people, Joseph and Daniel. Both these people experienced extreme difficulties. You know, especially Joseph, right? Sold by his brothers, betrayed, you know, and, and, and sold into slavery, into Egypt, uh, suffering after suffering, served faithfully at Potiphar's house, and then uh, after a while has been falsely accused, uh, thrown into the dungeon, to the prison, spent many years being innocent and all. He's righteous. He's never done anything. What has he done to deserve such punishment and some, such, such hardship? Nothing. Sometimes when we are in, a, in the middle of a difficulty, we ask the same thing, right? What have I done to deserve this? No, you have not. maybe you have not done anything to deserve it. Just like Joseph. But you know what? The entire story of Joseph in the Bible, he never ever questioned the goodness of God. 
He never ever questioned the goodness of God. And in fact, at the last chapter, at the last part of that story in Genesis 50, he says to his brothers, you meant evil, but God has turned it to good. And that's the goodness of God, isn't it? That whatever evil is in this world, God can always turn situations around for the good. And that's a promise of God. You know, our, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. All things work together for good to those who love the Lord. So kapatid, if you are in that season of pain and suffering, if you are in a season of inconvenience and, 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 uncomf- and discomfort, if you are in a season of, why is this so difficult? You know, kapit lang, kapit lang. Never ever doubt that God is good. He will always turn things around. If you hold on, if you continue to believe, if you continue to trust Him, He is good. Amen? Hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. So, as we continue, I'd like to share the second uh, moral attribute of God, and that is the righteousness of God. So, God's righteousness is closely linked to the goodness of God. All this work hand in hand, and also the holiness of God. But what's different about God's righteousness, uh, from that word itself, you can see there being right. You know, God is always right. You know, you can be, you can be as human beings, no, you can be good, but you're not always right. <laughs> but God is always good, and He is always right. <laughs> the picture here is that of a ruler. Amen? So, every single person, I've never known any person who can draw a perfectly straight line. No one can do that. No one can actually do that. Um, it, it might look straight, but the moment you look at it close up, it's not perfectly straight. The only way you can draw a perfectly straight line is when you use a ruler and you trace that with your pen. Is that correct? So, that ruler, that's somehow a picture of God. God defines right from wrong. You know, God has all the right to define that. In our postmodern and even post-Christian uh, era or society, a lot of people, especially when I was in university back then, my classmates who does not believe in God, says that, hey, you know what? Good is relative or right is relative. It's up to you to define good. You know, the good for you might be, uh, the bad for you might be good for another person, right? So, <laughs> I remember one of my classmates saying that, and I said, I said to him, ah, okay, so what's good for me might be bad for you, or what's bad for me might be good for you. Okay, let me just uh, go to your house and slap your mother. Do you think that's good? <laughs> uh, you can't say it's bad, because maybe it's good for me. That's relative right don't fall into that lie my friends right and wrong is always absolute good and evil in the bible it's always absolute it's god who defines it it's god who defines it uh, people who normally say that all oh, good is good is relative or right is right and wrong is relative normally are given into the lie the same lie that the serpent 
said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when the serpent said to uh, uh, Eve in the Garden of Eden that when you eat of this fruit, you shall know, you shall be as wise as God. You will be like God. Basically, what the servant, serpent is saying to Eve is you can define your own right and wrong. You can define your own good and evil because you are God. You will become God now when you eat of this fruit. And that's the lie of the enemy that until now is still happening in the world. Many people have defined for themselves what is good and what is evil and what is right and what is wrong without the ruler. Without the ruler. Only God can draw a straight line. All right, so what is righteousness then? If God is always right, righteousness means that uh, it's a divine attribute that describes God as acting always in a way that is consistent with His own character. He always acts uh, and do, does the right thing. So the key word here for righteousness is the word action. You know, when goodness is His moral attribute of being, you know, being good, therefore uh, what He gives is good, what He creates is good, righteousness can only be righteousness when it is based on an action that God does. So it means that every action, every decision, every uh, thing that God is doing is always right. And that is an amazing news. That is a wonderful truth to uh, meditate upon because it means that God at ne will never ever be wrong, that God will always be right. And that should be a blanket of security for us, that God being our Lord and our Master, our King, you know, God is exercising righteousness on the earth. That's in verse uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. It says, But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. And look at that word, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness on the earth. God exercises or practices righteousness upon the earth. Amen? And in this, he delights. He delights in doing right. Amen? The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord... The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So, you know, it's important for us to know that because at times that we get confused, what's the right thing to do? Or what's the right thing to say? Or what's the right thing to think? Or what's the right thing uh, to, 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 you know, to make? Something like that. You know, we always can lean upon the ruler of our lives. Lord, you are the standard and you are the guide for me to do the right thing. If we rely upon God's righteousness, then we can also practice righteousness in our lifetime. Amen? So look at this. The judge of all the earth will always do what is right. Is it, isn't it uh, wonderful to think about that God omnipresent, God omnipotent, God omniscient, God all-powerful is always right? I mean, think about this. If any 
president or prime minister or any leader in the world will be all-powerful, but you're not sure that he's doing the right thing, will you be feeling safe? No. But that sense of safety is what God wants us to have. Elohim, Psalm 91, because he does always what is right, and we can rest. God is still in control. Amen. Amen? Yes? <laughs> Second down, third one to go, and that is God's holiness. So basically, before I go to the third one, uh, just me uh, thought in my mind. So Pastor Jeff, if God's practicing righteousness on the earth, why is it that many parts of the earth doesn't look right? Have you thought of that? So why is there extreme poverty in Africa or in India? Why is there uh, abuse and injustice in many parts of Asia? And why is there, you know, selfishness and greed and, and corruption in uh, a lot of the areas of, 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 of leadership in nations? And the reason why is because the rule of God is not yet there. What I mean by that is, you know, we have, been, uh, we have been taught by Jesus to pray the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as God's children, we are supposed to be the one expanding, you know, instruments of expanding the kingdom of God where things are not right. We should be God's instruments areas in those places in the world where things are not right is because the righteousness of God is not yet reigning there. Because the gospel hasn't been heard there or has been rejected there. Therefore, the kingship of God is not in there and therefore all of it is If a family, a household, if that family, Jesus is not their king, they try as they can Try as much as you can, but you know, righteousness will still not reign there. Only when Jesus reigns there will righteousness reign there. Amen. Are you with me? All right. from his creation and his moral purity is perfect and you know it's 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 both beautiful but at the same time terrifying you know uh let me just show you this short video clip and then we will proceed with explaining what this is uh watch your screens carefully turn up the volumes if you must You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. 
what it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple 
and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream, and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But... Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. We believe the Bible is one complete narrative, so we're making these videos. That's a a pretty cool um, video explanation of the holiness of God, and I hope that you have grasped a little bit of that concept in there. And uh, some of the things that I wanted to point out is that in the Old Testament, obviously, God uh, demanded and commanded, basically, the nation of Israel to be holy, for he is holy. He was setting them apart. He was setting them apart, and he wanted, he had a mission, basically, and he wanted to use Israel. But he cannot cohabit with the Israelites apart if, if they are continually living in their sin. In Leviticus, in particular, um, many, many parts actually in the Old Testament, like, for example, he says, God says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And then you shall be holy to me. You will be set apart unto me. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And you see for that most word, pe- I've separated you from the peoples, that you should, you should be mine. It just means that God is saying to the nation of Israel, do not touch the unclean, or something like that. But... Uh, we know the story, the nation of Israel could never and would have never, uh, you know, achieved or attained such level or standard of moral purity. And God knows that. And the prophecy still is, uh, God hasn't changed his mind. He still wanted a people for himself. And in Exodus 19 verse 6, he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy Nation, But how can this be possible? How can this be possible? Now, of course, all of us knows that the answer is Jesus. But just as a matter of illustration, let's look at this next picture right here. Do you recognize that? 
that is lady justice. Now, we see that all the time in many Supreme Courts or law courts anywhere else in the world. This has become very famous. It's a picture of a woman holding a sword and blindfolded and a weighing scale. And that weighing scale is said to be the weighing scale of justice. Sometimes we think uh, that that weighing scale symbolizes uh, the prosecution uh, and the defense, right? And the, uh, the, the, the evidences of the prosecutor will be placed on one side of the scale and the defense evidence will be placed on the other side of the scale. And when whatever is uh, heavier, that's, that's basically going to be, you know, uh, in favor of that is the ruling of the judge. Now, that doesn't, it's not really like that. So the weighing scale is actually, if you're going to look at all the symbols or statues everywhere, uh, you will find that on the other side of the scale is the word justice. And then on the other side of the scale are all the evidences, both of the prosecutors and the defense. All of the evidence is there. And basically, that weighing scale just symbolizes that if it is balanced, it means that we have sufficient uh, evidences, in a sense, to rule out justice, to basically declare a decision. So that's the concept of that weighing scale. Now, we can use that as an illustration in the sense that if we are going to be in a law court and the judge is going to declare us whether we are guilty or innocent, now all of us knows, all of us knows that we are all guilty. The picture of that weighing scale is this, that all on one side of the scale, you put all your good deeds and your bad deeds, all everything, all your good records and bad records, and hopefully you're wishing that your good records will you know, somehow be good enough. But what's on the other side of the scale? On the other side of the scale is God himself. <laughs> because that word just or justice means equal. And for that to be equal, it means that you're spared, right? But we know that we will never be equal to the righteousness and the goodness and the holiness of God. That scale will always be in unbalance. And no matter what good deeds we do, no matter how many times, no matter how much good deeds we do, we do it will never be enough to match the goodness of God. It will never be enough. So, but God wants us to be with Him. God wants us to be, in a sense, equal. Not equal in a sense, but have a relationship with Him. But how is that possible? And the answer is that for that weighing scale to be balanced, Jesus has to take this side of the weighing scale. If you believe in Jesus and receive Him and have surrendered to His Lordship, and being a savior of your life, that weighing scale, the weight of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that's the time that it becomes balanced. And you can be in relationship with God. Now all this to point out three things as I close in this preaching today. You know, God is good. God is righteous. God is holy. And for us to be in relationship with Him, we have to also be in that state of goodness, righteousness, and holiness. But no effort, no religion, nothing whatsoever, nothing we can do to be able to attain that. 
And man, humanity has tried everything, every religion, every effort to be able to reach God's standards. Romans 3.23 says the way, that, uh, for all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Fallen short of the standard of God. Now, God is God. He can never lower His standards. Otherwise, He will never be good. Like, for example, if a judge does not uh, give a right verdict, would you say that that judge is a good judge? Of course not. Because he's not, uh, you know, he's lowered his standards. He's compromised. You know? God can never compromise his standard. But God can always choose to be merciful. We're going to talk about that in the next coming weeks. But what I want you to understand is this. The attainment, in a sense, or the possibility for us to be ever in a relationship with God, to be ever, you know, experiencing fully the magnificent goodness and righteousness and holiness of God is not of our own goodness. So point number one is this, it's not your goodness that will save you, it's God's goodness. You know, we try everything, you know. We are saved not because we are good. A lot of people think that way, right? So when you ask people, oh, when you die, where are you going to go? Oh, I think I'm good enough. I've done good things. My good things outweighs my bad things anyway. So maybe, maybe I'll go to heaven. No, my friend, you're not going to heaven because you are good. You're going to heaven because God is good. Because God has been merciful. Out of God's heart flows mercy and grace because He is good. And look at this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to, uh, 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by your good works so that no man can boast. Do you see that? It is not from your good works. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and not by your works. God accepts you not because you have been good enough. You know, God accepts you and loves you and receives you because He is good. And in His goodness, He has been merciful and gracious. And that's the goodness of God. It's not our goodness. It's the goodness of God. We can never boast of our goodness. We can never boast of any good thing that we have done. Right? But look at this. We have been saved, yes, by grace through faith, not by our good works. But our salvation, after God has, you know, given us salvation and have granted us pardon, look at verse 10. It says continually, For we are God's handiwork, and the purpose originally of God for us is we are created in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works. So that's the balance again of that scale, isn't it? It doesn't mean that, oh, I've been forgiven, Jesus died for me on the cross, and uh, the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all my sin. I receive you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. Amen. And then you do your life and do bad things, and then you do immoral things, and then do whatever is opposite to the goodness of God. That's not right. Now, we continue to pursue what God has started within us. And He's continually building in us. And that's what created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And to do good works is not just, you know, to be a philanthropist or to build an orphanage or to do these good things. You can do good things in your own home, in your own family. Forgiveness is good work. It's good work. 
Be extra kind. Be extra generous. Be extra forgiving. Be extra patient. Be extra understanding. Be extra helping, supporting, encouraging. Those are good works. Amen? Which God prepared in advance for us to do. If God has been good to us and His goodness flows to us, it should also flow through us. If the goodness of God flows towards us, it should also flow through us. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Look at this, Romans 2.4. Do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's goodness, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Look at this. Every time you, you turn away, every time you step to the left or to the right, every time you, you, you stop following Jesus, you know what you will expect from God? Goodness. He will still be good to you in all forms and it takes many forms the goodness of god takes many forms you know a parent who disciplines his child is a good parent but he disciplines his child a parent who smacks you know uh, you know train up a child in the way he should go you know uh, spare the ride spare the ride spoil the child so some many different uh, each parent has their own conviction about disciplining their children right but a parent who disciplines their children is a good parent and god is good so he disciplines us read hebrews chapter 12 <laughs> that's basically what it says uh, i mean romans chapter 12 if i'm not mistaken all right so let's continue with that trail of thoughts say to them as surely as i live declares the sovereign lord I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? So this is the goodness of God. God's goodness is so overwhelming that He doesn't want any single person. Think of the most cruel, the most uh, bad or evil, the most wicked person you can ever think of in this world. God still wants that person to be saved. That's the goodness of God. God still wants to grant salvation upon that person. How amazing is the goodness of God? Therefore, read yourselves. And look at this, right? So it doesn't end there. Um, I said, again, the response that we should have as we receive God's goodness is not just to be its beneficiary and, uh, and, and it, stops, it stops to us, right? When we receive God's goodness, it should naturally flow towards others. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. It says there, you have to read of yourselves, of your old nature, right? Because the old nature is never good. As you continue to receive the goodness of God, it should transform you. It should transform your lips. Before, your lips are speaking wicked things, but now it's speaking good things. Good things. Because the God who has saved you is good and you've experienced his goodness. Secondly, it's not a righteousness of our own, but God's righteousness given unto us. 
We don't have a righteousness of our own. It's God who has made us righteous. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus. God made him no, uh, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So that's what happened on the cross, my friend. My friend, Jesus took on the form of sin and was crucified there, uh, penalized there, so that we can become the righteousness of God. That was the divine exchange. We were not good enough. We were not righteous of our own. Nothing we can do can be straight. Nothing can, we can do can be, can be reaching the standards of God's righteousness. But God in His mercy, God in His grace, God, God in His justice, right, did a divine exchange. Our punishment was given to His Son so that we who deserves that punishment can be granted eternal life instead. The goodness and the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. Amen? Christians are called righteous not because they have any ability to accomplish good works, but because they reside in the good works or the righteousness of Christ. We reside in the righteousness of Christ. Every time we come to God, what God sees is the blood of His Son. That's why we can enter there, because no one that's righteous can enter the, the presence of God. But because of the blood of Jesus, we can. Amen? Christ's obedience is transferred to us and God grants us eternal life as a result. Ha! If that is not enough for you to worship God, then I don't know what. In 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Hallelujah. Are you with me? Are you still following me? Amen. Just a quick one, and I will just run uh, about this very quickly. So this is basically the four aspects of divine righteousness is what makes us righteous. It what, it's, it's what makes us righteous to God. Look at the righteousness of God. Rectoral righteousness just means that, uh, obviously, God demands righteousness. Rectoral, rectoral righteousness, because He is righteous, He demands and He commands righteousness to His people. But the, the truth is, we cannot attain that righteousness because of sin. We are, we are sinners. So, that means, it, it's what retributive righteousness means. That retributive righteousness is that aspect of the nature of God which inflicts punishment. So, unrighteousness deserves punishment. And, and that is right and that is good because that's right. If, if, if criminals in this world will not receive punishment, then what would happen to the world, right? And that's the same thing, the same uh, concept. God has retributive righteousness. He punishes wickedness. There are many scriptures that talks about this. You know, it is a righteous thing that God punished the wicked, 2 Thessalonians 1.6. And, but then, the third one is redemptive righteousness, which is basically this, that it follows from all of this that if God will redeem sinners, it will only be so as He can do so righteously. He cannot sidestep justice. So, redemptive righteousness means that, yun nga, yung pinapaliwanag ko kanina, that we have received pardon and eternal life and forgiveness because someone else took our punishment. We have been redeemed. Amen? But the righteousness of God does not stop there. 
The moment you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, there's what we call the remunerative righteousness. And what it is, is that God rewards your acts of righteousness. As a result of being saved, you know, as you continue to follow Him and obey Him, the Lord is a rewarder of righteousness. But that, if you come to think of it, the idea is this. Say, for example, you're a gardener and you've been hired. No? You've been hired as a gardener. So you, you are obviously receiving salary. So you've been given a job and then one day you, you did an amazing job in that garden where you work. And therefore, the boss or the owner pays you your salary. But what happens after that is that the boss or the owner not just gives you your salary, he rewards your good work in that garden. You might say, but it's my job. It's my job. So my salary is enough because I did my job. But that boss is generous enough. That's, that's what you call remunerative righteousness. God does not need to reward us. He doesn't owe us. Walang utang na loob sa atin ang Diyos tuwing naglilingkod tayo sa Kanya. Tuwing sumusunod tayo sa Kanya, walang utang na loob sa atin ang Lord. And that's what my encouragement is to each one of you who are serving the Lord, who are following the Lord. God will reward your righteousness. God will reward your practiced righteousness. Your service unto the Lord will never be forgotten. The Lord is faithful to reward it. Amen? You with me? Amen. Hallelujah. And then last but not the least, and in this we close, not our holiness, but God's holiness. Amen? What we have received from God is far greater than any human mind can comprehend because God did not just give us salvation or pardon or um, eternal life or blessing. God made us holy. He made us holy. We cannot make ourselves holy. We cannot have relationship with God who is holy. But because He made us holy, it's now possible to have relationship with Him. In, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made Him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He made us pure and holy and He freed us from sin. Those of you who have suffered from sin for a long time and have received Jesus and have found freedom in Him knows what I am talking about. When God frees you from sin, oh, it's the best thing that could ever happen in your life. And God makes you holy. He calls you holy. He calls you, basically calls you His own. You are God's property. And what other privilege can be greater than that? You're not just God's property. You're God's child. You're God's children. He is our Father. Holy God, calling sinful men and women like you and me and calling us holy. Not because of what we've done, not because of our efforts, but because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. We have been made holy. Hallelujah. So, as a matter of gratitude and honoring what the Lord has done, let's live our lives in accordance to the, 
what he deserves in a sense. First Peter 1 Peter 1.13-16, he says, Prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back in your old ways of living or satisfying your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now, but now, but now you must be holy in everything you do because you have been set apart by God, by the blood of Jesus. So you now must be holy in everything you do just as God who chose you is holy because now it is possible. Now it is possible because of the blood and because of the Holy Spirit. Amen? The scripture tells us we must be holy for Christ our Lord is holy. And this is my prayer to you as well in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Oh, may the Lord make us holy, church. May the Lord make J.R.M. Sydney holy. Preserve our soul, body, and spirit. And this is the assurance that we have. God will make this happen. For He who calls us, He is faithful. <laughs> Take note of that. God will make it happen. You see, it's God who will make it happen. It's not even us. All we have to do is to just submit to Him. All we have to do is to just rest upon Him. All we have to do is to just stay with Him. And God will make this happen. That's the assurance we have in the Lord. Oh, how good, how righteous, how holy is our God. Church, would you stand up on your feet and prepare to worship the Lord, hallelujah, in this one song. And though I, I encourage you that even in your own homes, in your own house, would you sing to the Lord like never before? Would you sing to God? When was the last time that you sang to God and you sang your heart out? Come on. Would you sing to God? Can we adore Him? Jesus, our beautiful Savior. Hallelujah. Amen. Oh, Jesus. Thank you for joining us in today's episode. And we hope that we will have you again in the next one. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance, His smile over you and give you peace. Shalom. God bless you.